Welcome to the A Jesus Church podcast. We're a family seeking to become like Jesus, empowered by His presence to partner in God's creative work of restoring the world. We pray this episode encourages and equips you along the journey. Well, good morning. Uh, my name's Richard. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, if you've not said hi, uh, come see me. I'll, I'll be at the Connect Space out there or high-fiving kids down here. And uh, today we're going to be continuing in the Undivided series and looking at Abraham and Isaac. Um, but I want to start by reading uh, this in Psalm 37. It says, Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And we've been talking a lot this summer about what it means to have an undivided heart. And I think our worship flourishes, it's at its best and richest and deepest when our deepest self is just resting and and hoping and finding its security in entrusting itself to God. When God's loving care for us becomes like the Garden of Eden, where the deep things of our soul find rest and life, it's all we can do but to respond in this grateful satisfaction that we call worship. And our deepest self is who we are behind the surface layers of like, what am I going to eat for lunch today? Where did I park the car? What should I wear? You know, all of the day-to-day things. It's those things that we'll measure the satisfaction of the whole arc of a season of our life by. And Psalm 37 connects these things together. It connects together the deep things of our heart being satisfied and delighting God. And as we look at Abraham and Isaac today, we're going to discover that God engages with Abraham's deepest self, with his heart's desires. And we're going to look especially at God's command to sacrifice Isaac, who was Abraham's son, um, and, and why this was a moment where Abraham got his heart undivided and actually his deepest desires were able to flourish and thrive. Flourish is like a mixture of those two words. That's word of the day, guys. New made up word of the day. Okay, get those lips ready to say flourish. Let's read, okay? So we're going to read this command to sacrifice Isaac. This comes in Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. Okay, so let's pray before we start unpacking all of this. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for recording for us the important things that you've done that reveal who you are. They show us who we are and they show us what you want to do. Lord, We don't want to be people who come to your word and you have something to show us and we walk away having missed it or not responded to it. So we invite you, Jesus, to send your spirit today. Show us how to respond. 
how to hear what your spirit is saying to this church today. Lord, we believe that you have good things for us. Undistract us, lock us in. Help us hear what it is that you have to say for us where we walk out of this place a bit different today. Amen. Okay. So this is often a confusing story. Uh, This is actually a pivotal moment in the whole arc of Abraham's story. But I think we kind of get itchy under the collar when we read it because it is kind of complex and it's hard to make sense of. Uh, In fact, I think there are some really poor interpretations of this, like uh, the idea that what's really going on here is that God's command somehow makes the evil of killing Isaac a right thing, not a wrong thing. That morality is just something God can flick a switch on. Or the idea that Abraham, actually, he's the father of faith and he has this great faith because either he was willing to give up his son or he was willing to give up on morality for the sake of following God. As if that's the kind of call that a good God is going to make of people he's trying to form to be good people. But what we're going to discover is that God's goodness is maintained throughout the whole story. But what we're going to have to do is zoom way out and walk through the Abraham story to see why this is significant, like what's actually going on at this moment. And one of the recurring themes we're going to see in Abraham's life is Abraham's desire to be the father of a great people. Abraham's heart's desire is to be the patriarch of a clan, of a tribe. It's his deep longing and God keeps interacting with it. But one of the first things we find out about Abraham is that his wife, Sarah, cannot have any children. And this has gone on for decades and decades and decades. So his heart's desire is stuck. And God begins to interact with Abraham around these themes. And so we're going to just read here Genesis 12, the first few verses. This is the first time God comes to Abraham, who, by the way, is called Abraham at the start of the story. If you haven't read it before, his name gets changed partway through. And it says this, this is the first conversation God has with Abraham. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So amazing promise. Don't have time to get into we could spend we could do a whole series on these verses. Amazing. But what's important is the way Abraham responds. He gets up quickly and he leaves, which is what God said to do. But he takes Lot, his nephew, with him, which is contrary to what God said to do. He said to leave your father's house and your kindred, your relatives. This is the first time we see something that becomes a pattern throughout Abraham's life. He believes the promise God has given him. He gets up, he leaves. It means something to him. There's some level of trust and engagement with it. But he also acts in a way where he shows that his trust is not wholehearted. Taking Lot with him is a way for him to try to make the promise come true by himself. After all, he's been childless for decades. And he can see how Lot could be a way that he's kind of a patriarch of what could become a great clan. But that's not the same as trusting God 
to make of him a great nation. So Abraham believes, but he struggles to believe. And he's double-minded about God's goodness. So we're going to fast forward to the fourth interaction that God has with Abraham, the fourth promise. A lot has happened in between. A lot of time has passed. Uh, The second time God comes to Abraham, uh, God reiterates and clarifies the promise. He engages again, but makes it more specific that it's Abraham's seed that will become this great nation. And the third time, he clarifies that this seed won't be your extended family, but it'll be your direct descendant. And this, interestingly, comes just after Abraham and Lot part ways and have to separate. So in the moment that like plan B or plan Lot has to separate, God comes and interacts with Abraham and says, wasn't how I was going to do it. Let me tell you how I'm going to do it. Like it's going to be okay. And by the fourth, another thing that's happened is that Abraham has adopted Eliezer, one of his servants, to be his heir. Now, it's interesting, the conversation that Abraham has with God shows that Abraham understands the previous promises. He understands that God is going to make of him a great nation and that it's going to be through his seed because he complains to God. He says, hey, I don't have my seed yet. In fact, my servant Eliezer is going to be my heir. This is not right. So he's complaining to God because the promise isn't coming true. Uh, So why adopt Eliezer, Abraham? Like, if you're expecting God to fulfill his promise, why do something that's getting in the way? Well, Abraham's trust in God's promises, once again, it's wavered. He's made a backup plan. Because over the course of time, you know, his trust that God is going to fulfill the promise, it's got rocky. But complaining shows that there's something deep in Abraham where he believes that the ball is in the promise maker's court. Like, God, it's your move. You need to do something. And so there's this double-mindedness in Abraham again. But what God does in his response is he reiterates the promise. And not just reiterates it, but elaborates on it and makes it clear that the descendants I'm talking about will be from your own loins, Abraham. They're not going to be foster sons. They're not going to be adopted heirs. And Abraham believes this clarification in the point of tension inside himself where he's like, well, I kind of want to believe, but I've, I've made this backup plan, but I feel like it's wrong. And in the midst of that confusion, God brings clarity and invites him into trust. But that belief, that trust is immediately followed by doubt. He asks a question. He says, how will I know? And it's really interesting the way God responds to Abraham. I don't know if you've ever had one of your kids where you've promised them something and they're like, yeah, but how do I know you're going to keep your promise? And it's like, well, I promise. Like, if you trust me, that should be enough, right? Like, I'm going to tell you off and like, you shouldn't be asking me to prove to you. You know, like I need to sign some sort of contract. Like, I gave you my word. And God could have done that. If I was God, I would have done that, okay? I would have been indignant but God doesn't do that. What God does is he gives more prediction and visions and reiterates the promises again and sets those promises in the forming of a covenant between himself and Abraham. 
And a covenant is taking their relationship to this like deeply committed, formalized relationship that's like enshrined in ritual that, that means it's not going away. See, it might seem strange that God reacts this way to the question, but there's actually five times in Abraham's story that Abraham fails in his trust. And each time God responds by inviting Abraham into trust, not by rebuking him, not by telling him off, not by giving him proof, because God's not trying to justify himself. And God's not just interested in trying to produce a nation. What God's actually most interested in is trying to develop a relationship of trust with Abraham. That's God's big plan. And this kind of trust is hard for Abraham. It's really hard for him. The father of faith struggles with trust. And and you know what? It's hard for us. It's culturally hard for us. We live in this culture where we think security comes primarily from control, not trusting others. Right? So we can really associate. I know each and every one of us can associate with Abraham because this kind of trust is really countercultural. And if God had given Abraham proof, if God had tried to justify himself, it would have destroyed the trust building process because it would have removed the need for trust. And so God is taking Abraham on a journey of promises. And these promises, they evolve, they get more specific, they sort of deepen and amplify what the ask is of Abraham each step along the way. Each step requires a growth in Abraham's trust in God. This is a journey of growth in trust. And at each step along the way, Abraham experiences that God does not give up on his promises. At no point does God rock up and be like, oh dude, I'm so sorry, I I completely forgot. No, God all the time is on it. But Abraham's having a hard time trusting it. And each step along the way, Abraham discovers the futility of his own efforts to try and fulfill these promises by himself. And not only that, okay, by the time we get to the end of the journey, where there's a lot of trust and a lot of specificity to the ask God's making of Abraham at Mount Moriah, when he has to sacrifice Isaac, if God had started in that point, what would Abraham have done? Nope. I, can't, I just can't believe that. I just, my heart does not have the capacity to trust that or believe that or even internalize what you're telling me. So God is wisely crafting a journey to develop Abraham. Okay, well, let's carry on along the journey. So I'm going to fast forward to Abraham and Ishmael. And this is in uh, chapter 16. Let's read a few verses to set this up. Now, Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go and sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And Abraham agreed to what Sarah had said. Abraham is showing his double-mindedness again, taking the fulfillment of the promises into his own hands. And his actions set in motion things that cause great distress and suffering. The strategy is successful in producing a child, but the injustice of Sarah offering another woman in her power to her husband for sex and him saying yes and agreeing, unsurprisingly leads to 
like great harm, great pain, great discord in this family. And we end up with Hagar despising Sarah and Sarah being furious at Hagar. And Abraham gives Sarah permission to do whatever she wants to resolve the situation. And we don't know what it was, but it must have been a terrible prospect because Hagar hightails it into the desert by herself, facing death. So whatever, whatever she was facing, death was better in the desert. But it takes an angel of the Lord to interrupt her fleeing and bring her back. But here's the thing, the angel of the Lord doesn't just tell her to return, doesn't just rescue her, but also gives Hagar promises about her child. Promises that are very similar to the ones that were given to Abraham. God promises that her child Ishmael will become a great people. So Hagar is consoled, rescued and protected. God has given her a secure future. He's enabled her to return to Sarah and face the complexity of this situation and walk it through. God, notice, is not treating Hagar like a pawn, which is what Abraham and Sarah have done. God's valuing her and her child. And Hagar seems to tell the promise to Abraham because when the child is born, Abraham seems to have believed it and he names the child Ishmael in accordance with the promise. Okay? The fifth time that God interacts with Abraham is a response to what's happened here with Hagar and Ishmael. So the next time God comes to Abraham, the promise is clarified once again, that the promised seed will be a child that he has with Sarah. Not some surrogacy involving a slave, but with Sarah. And the covenant gets reaffirmed. God reiterates these promises and deepens them. And how does Abraham respond? By asking God to bless Ishmael. Really confusing. Abraham is showing his double-mindedness again. You see, he believes the promise about Sarah. He, he laughs about it. He's like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And he doesn't ask for a confirmation of it. He doesn't ask for a sign. He doesn't question it. But even though there's belief, trust welling up in him about what God has said, there's something else welling up in him where he wants to protect plan Ishmael. And God responds by making clear to him, like, I'm not fulfilling this promise through Ishmael. But God cares about Ishmael. He's not just a pawn. And so God still blesses him and reiterates his promises about Ishmael, that Ishmael is protected, that God has his future in his, hand, in his hands. And in the midst of Abraham's growing faith, this compulsion to protect his heart's desire to, to put his own plans into action keeps cropping up. And you know what? It continues all the way to the end of Abraham's life. Uh, after Sarah dies, Abraham lives for a good old time and he takes another wife called Keturah. And by this time, Isaac, who's the promised son, the one God said he would have with Sarah, has arrived, okay? And he's gotten married to Rebekah but for the first 19 years of their marriage, they remained childless. And during those 19 years, Abraham marries Keturah and has six more sons. And eventually, he sends those sons away. He gives them gifts and is like, yeah, you're not, you're not the plan A, so you need to go do your own thing. And he sends them away. But he only sends them away 
once Rebecca and Isaac's children have got to teenage years when they've got past the risk of infant mortality. Abraham struggles his whole life long to trust in a wholehearted way. But he's still able to be the father of faith. There's still a faith in him that keeps cropping up, that God celebrates as the kind of faith that we should all aspire to have. That's really good for us to remember, like God's not a perfectionist, okay? We'll get there one day, it's called a resurrection. But God doesn't hold us over the kind of broken form of perfectionism that we often struggle with. So fast forwarding on, like next interaction God has is around Sodom and Gomorrah. God comes and he talks to Abraham about the impending destruction of these cities where there's great wickedness going on. And it's really interesting. Abraham enters into negotiations with God. He's like, whoa, you're going to destroy these cities? Yeah, but what if there's like, what if there's like 50 righteous people in there? Like the righteous can't suffer the same fate as the unrighteous. And God's like, yeah, well, I wouldn't destroy the city for 50 righteous people. And Abraham's like, well, well what if there's 40? What if there's 30? And he talks him all the way down to 10, okay? Really, really weird interaction because this is Abraham's double-mindedness coming out again. On the one hand, Abraham believes and actually names God as the judge of all the earth. And on the other hand, he feels the need to talk the judge of all the earth into acting justly. And in the end, yeah, Abraham negotiates him down to 10. And what God actually does is rescue Lot and his family so zero righteous people suffer in the destruction of the city. Like, God shows that he was actually way more just than Abraham even thought. But again, like, uh, for, for thinking of those parent situations where your kid comes up and they're all indignant about something and they want to negotiate because they don't think it's fair, right? It's a failure of trust and it can make you indignant. It, it can be painful. But God does not rebuke Abraham. He's patient in talking through Abraham's concerns. It's really interesting because this is part of God forming in Abraham an understanding of justice. It actually says in this section that God wanted to talk to Abraham about this because Abraham needed to instruct his household how to love justice and do mercy and follow God's ways. And so God's entering into the difficulty Abraham's having to try and engage him where he's at. God shows his care for Abraham. Now think about this, Abraham who clearly has some trust issues and is gonna watch these cities on his backyard get destroyed. And God's like, I need to go talk to Abraham because he's gonna freak out when he sees this if I don't talk to him about it first. God, this is God caring for Abraham, protecting that trust that he's trying to build with Abraham. So we fast forward a little bit more. In the fullness of time, Abraham and Sarah have this promised son and they name him Isaac. And there's a celebration at the time Isaac is weaned. And the teenage Ishmael is there and he does something that Sarah identifies as mocking him or entering into a, a rivalry with Isaac. And Sarah is furious. And she demands of Abraham that Hagar be thrown out into the desert with Ishmael, never to return. And what Sarah wants is horrible. It's evil. 
okay? She wants to throw Hagar and Ishmael out into the desert to die, or if they're really, really fortunate, maybe get captured and become slaves. Okay? Not good. And Abraham finds himself caught between two options. On the one hand, his morality and his concern for Ishmael, like doing what's right and caring for his son, who's now 16 years old, who he loves. But on the other hand, is his relationship with Sarah. And he's caught, but like righteousness is all on one side here. Sarah, you're wrong. That's not how we treat people. It's not what we do. It's not how we resolve our conflict. This is murderous revenge. It's not just. And God comes and interacts with Abraham. And it's really surprising. He says, Abraham, do what Sarah says. Really surprising. Like, what's, what's going on? Like, how can God side with Sarah? Well, here's the difference. Sarah's intentions are evil, to harm. But God's intentions are not. God's plan and promise has been to protect Ishmael and Hagar and to cause them to flourish. And his plan is to separate Ishmael from Abraham because he doesn't want to confuse Abraham into thinking that plan Ishmael is vindicated and is, like, is the response to the promise, is the fulfillment, and it's going to disrupt this trust building that God's doing with him. God has promised to make Ishmael a great nation. And if God's promises are true, Ishmael will surely not die in the desert. And knowing this, believing this, trusting God to do it, that enables Abraham to do what Sarah wants without being guilty of injustice against Hagar and Ishmael. God's promise enables Abraham to share God's intention, not Sarah's. And he doesn't know how it's going to happen. He can't see how it's going to happen. That's why it's called trust but it enables him to act differently in this situation. And that doesn't mean it's going to be easy or it's going to be painless. This is still going to be a huge sacrifice for Abraham. And so Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael away. I want you to notice something, okay? When Abraham does this, he acts in obedience and he trusts God's promises, but also he acts in a way that aligns with his self-interest. In a culture that highly values being the firstborn, Ishmael was always going to be a threat to Isaac. So having him move out of a household actually helps to protect the, the son of promise, Isaac. And by now, Abraham understands the importance of that. And not only that, like this complex family has lived through decades of pain and tension and broken relationships. And sending Hagar away is a way to like, settle some of that discord. It's in Abraham's own self-interests to do this. But God is engaging him about the promises that he's given and says, because I've promised, you can do this. So there's trust in there, but there might be other things going on in Abraham's heart and it might have been difficult for even him to tell why he was doing what he was doing. He might have worried about the state of his own heart and his own righteousness and his own sense of justice as he did these things. And now we come to what we read at the start, Genesis 22. When God comes to Abraham after Ishmael has been sent away, at a time when Isaac is now about 16 years old, about the same age as Ishmael was when he was thrown out of the household. 
And God comes and he calls Abraham's name, which is unique. So it's the only time God does this. And Abraham recognizes God and responds. And in the context of that recognition, of that relationship, then God gives this command to take your teenage son, Isaac, who you love, your only son, to journey three days to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. Now, I can only imagine that like the voice of doubt and confusion must have arisen in Abraham's mind. You know, was I wrong before? Was I deceived? Can God be trusted? Did I make a mistake? How can this be? You know, just, just wondering how to make sense of this situation. But Abraham does not act on those thoughts. He doesn't complain. He doesn't collapse on the floor. He doesn't ask for a sign. He doesn't question. He's silent. He simply prepares to obey quickly. First thing the next morning. Why does Abraham act this way? This just seems so strange. Well, God has called Ishmael to mind in the way he's interacted with Abraham. When God said, I want you to take your only son, Abraham must have winced. The only son you've got left. That's what it comes down to. And what happened with Ishmael is the context that helps us make sense of what's happening here. When Abraham turned Ishmael out, God told Abraham to act in a way that without divine intervention would have left, uh, led to Ishmael's death. And only Abraham's belief in God's goodness and his promises could keep Abraham from committing a terrible wrong. And now Abraham faces a similar challenge. Once again, he has promises about Isaac, equivalent to the ones he had about Ishmael. And on one hand, if Abraham does end Isaac's life now, if Isaac actually dies and is gone, the promises will be shown to have been false all along. But on the other hand, if God is good and his promises are true, Isaac's life will not end now. No matter how unreasonable it seems, like how unseen it is for Abraham, how on earth it's going to happen, if the promises are true, this will not be the end of Isaac. And Abraham's long journey of building a trust relationship with God comes to a head here. Abraham must face up to all his prior double-mindedness. He's learned that lots of things that appear impossible turn out to be not that difficult for God. God keeps showing that he's able to do what seems impossible. And previously, you know, he turned Ishmael out on the strength of God's promise, but self-interest was also on the same side as obedience. At this time, obedience and self-interest are diametrically opposed. There's no possibility of mixed motives right here. Abraham will either entirely, wholeheartedly put his heart's desires in God's hands and entrust them to him, or he will refuse to do what God has commanded. Like things have, they've come to a pivot point in this journey of forming trust. And not only that, but the risk to the child seems amplified. You know, it, I, can, I can kind of imagine how God could keep Ishmael alive in the desert, wandering with Hagar by himself for a while. I can't understand. I mean, we know the story, so I can. But naturally speaking, no way I'm imagining how God is going to keep Isaac alive after I've sacrificed him as a burnt offering. 
okay? The ask has gone up. God is testing Abraham's trust. It says he's testing it. But it's not the kind of test that says, ah, I want to see how much you love me. How much are you willing to suffer for me? I'm going to make you suffer to see how much you really love me. That's, that's not God's kind of love. That's abuse. That's not what God's doing. What he's doing is he's refining his character. He's deepening their relationship to create in Abraham the kind of freedom that enables him to trust. So there's no possibility of mixed motives. Abraham's at a a fork in the road. Does he trust the power and goodness of God? Or does he admit that he turned Ishmael out for self-interest using God as a pretense? That's the test. God is making Abraham confront his double-mindedness and he's trying to set him free from it. He's prepared Abraham for this step. That's really important to see. This is a hardcore test. But what God has done over decades and decades is prepare Abraham to take this step. And he's prepared this step for Abraham. This step of sacrifice is something that God has designed as a part of Abraham's journey to grow Abraham. This is not an evil command. This is God lovingly nurturing and refining Abraham to confront his double-mindedness and to help him overcome his self-destructive tendencies around trust. And Abraham's silence indicates that he understood the nature of the test. There was no need to complain or negotiate or ask for a sign. This was the time for wholehearted trust and he does it. It doesn't mean it was easy for Abraham or easy to explain to Isaac on the three-day journey to Mount Moriah. There can be anguish in something trusted for. There can be pain and suffering, but suffering is experienced differently in the light of hope that's grounded in God's trustworthiness, which incidentally is like very countercultural. Okay, we need to, as Jesus people, resist that narrative in our culture that says that pain and things being hard are always an indicator that our life is not being led rightly. No, sometimes God leads us through hard things. So Abraham chooses to obey. He passes the test. Not because he obeyed out of fearing God's power. That would just be bullying. And not because he was willing to lose Isaac. That would actually be to give up trusting God's promises. But he passes because he believed that in obeying God and trusting his goodness, he was not giving Isaac up. He was entrusting Isaac and his heart's desire to God, even though he couldn't see how. And Abraham reveals this is his belief. By the way, he talks to his servant, saying, we're going to go, we're going to worship, and we are going to come back. And the way he talks to Isaac, when Isaac's like, "Uh, Dad, uh, what's going on? And he says, God's going to provide for the sacrifice. He doesn't know how, but he knows God's going to do something. So there's no place left for Abraham's double-mindedness. Abraham's heart's desire here gets fulfilled as he becomes not just the father of a tribe, but the father of faith. This is what the rest of the scriptures call Abraham. He becomes at this point not just the father of a clan, the father of the Israelites, but the father of everyone who shares this kind of faith. Think about that for a minute. Abraham had this heart's desire and he kept working to try to protect it, to make it come true. 
in the end, he is able to trust it to God. And the way he gets his heart's desire back is so much more than what he could have ever imagined. Abraham becomes the patriarch of something far greater than just a tribe or a clan. And throughout this story, the nature of this great faith that God's celebrating comes into focus. It's not just faith that God exists. And it's not um, just faith that God is powerful, that God can do the impossible. Like Abraham never questions those things throughout the whole story. And God doesn't interact with Abraham to develop those ideas at all. Abraham just seems to have an innate understanding that God exists and God can do what he wants. And no amount of certainty that God exists and is powerful would have made him give up his son. Abraham had to be willing to relate to God a certain way. He had to accept and trust in God's goodness. He had to be willing to stake his heart's desire on that belief. And when he did that, Abraham surrendered himself to God. He committed his desires to God's goodness in trust. And that's where he experienced the freedom that made him the father of faith. And he let go of his self-protective efforts. It's that relationship that makes Abraham the father of faith. It's that relationship that God celebrates. And so it's that relationship that becomes the call to us as people of faith, following after our father Abraham to learn from him. And we've spent this summer talking about undivided worship, right? What God is doing with Abraham is undividing him. He's picking out the things that are disrupting and dividing Abraham. Our worship reflects our relationship. And we are not going to have undivided worship without an undivided trust. So what becomes the key for God in finally forming Abraham's trust to be this? Sacrifice. The dirty word in our culture. But the most beautiful thing that God does in Abraham's life. And not just any sacrifice, but willing sacrifice based on trusting ourselves and our heart's desire to God's goodness. And we live in a culture that this is so wrong for. Like our culture thinks that security is founded on control rather than in trusting ourselves to others. That our flourishing will be determined by the use of our power rather than our submission. And like friends, we're called in Jesus to live differently. We have to resist these things because God wants to use sacrifice to form us, to free us for the better things, the more that he has for us. And what we learn from Abraham is that God's call to sacrifice will be safe. It won't be to harm us. It'll be to nurture us. There's lots of ways to engage with sacrifice. There's lots of things we can do to make it part of our rhythm of life, like regular things. Uh, It's why we have throughout the Bible things like God loves a cheerful giver. Like our our sacrificial giving exercises those muscles. It's why David said he would not offer to God something that cost him nothing. He understood sacrifice was really important. It's why habits of fasting permeate the people of God through thousands of years. It's why we are called to bring a sacrifice of praise, being willing to choose to find gratitude when our heart has become frustrated with things. 
And these are all good things, okay? And they all have an important part to play in the undivided life, but they're not the most important thing to respond to Abraham's story. See, all of these things, they exercise the right muscles, but our formation into undivided trust will be determined by what God asks us to lift with those muscles and whether we respond and do it. And so I want to invite you in responding to Abraham's story to pay attention to your own. I think sometimes we we get a little hyper-focused on the moment of our story. Like what happens in Abraham's life can only be appreciated by understanding that God plays the long game. So I want to invite you to think and remember this week, like what God has promised you? What has God said to you? What have people prophesied over you? What has God shown you in his word? And what has God done in your life? And what has God asked you to do? And how have you responded? Because the most important question in light of this is, is there something God is calling you to sacrifice? That's the pivotal question. Because your response to that could be pivotal for you having undivided trust in God. And if he is, what Abraham would encourage you is that that invitation to sacrifice is good for you. God's not out to hurt you. He just wants to bless you. He wants to love you and nurture you and it's safe and it's good. And you can entrust yourself and your heart's desires to this good God. And sacrifice might very well be the path forward in your relationship with God. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to partner with us through giving, visit us at ajesuschurch.org.